Chapter One of Mr. Guilfoyle's Love Story from Scenes of Clerical Life by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. Chapter One. When old Mr. Guilfoyle died thirty years ago, there was general sorrow in Shepperton, and if black cloth had not been hung round the pulpit and reading desk by order of his nephew and principal legatee the parishioners would certainly have subscribed the necessary sum out of their own pockets rather than allow such a tribute of respect to be wanting all the farmers wives brought out their black bombazines and mrs jennings at the wharf by appearing the first sunday after mr gilfil's death in her salmon-coloured ribbons and green shawl excited the severest remark to be sure mrs jennings was a newcomer and town-bred so that she could hardly be expected to have very clear notions of what was proper but as mrs higgins observed in an undertone to mrs parrot when they were coming out of church her husband who'd been born in the parish might have told her better an unreadiness to put on black on all available occasions or too great an alacrity in putting it off argued in mrs higgins's opinion a dangerous levity of character and an unnatural insensibility to the essential fitness of things some folks can't abear to put off their colours she remarked but that was never the way in my family why mrs parrot from the time i was married till mr higgins died nine years ago come candlemas i never was out o black two year together ah said mrs parrot who was conscious of inferiority in this respect there isn't many families as have had so many deaths as yours mrs higgins mrs higgins who was an elderly widow well left reflected with complacency that mrs parrot's observation was no more than just and that mrs jennings very likely belonged to a family which had had no funerals to speak of even dirty dame fripp who was a very rare church-goer had been to mrs hackett to beg a bit of old crape and with this sign of grief pinned on her little coal-scuttle bonnet was seen dropping her curtsy opposite the reading-desk this manifestation of respect towards mr gilfil's memory on the part of dame fripp had no theological bearing whatever it was due to an event which had occurred some years back and which i am sorry to say had left that grimy old lady as indifferent to the means of grace as ever dame fripp kept leeches and was understood to have such remarkable influence over those wilful animals in inducing them to bite under the most unpromising circumstances that though her own leeches were usually rejected from a suspicion that they had lost their appetite she herself was constantly called in to apply the more lively individuals furnished from mr pilgrim's surgery when as was very often the case one of that clever man's paying patients was attacked with inflammation thus dame fripp in addition to property supposed to yield her no less than half a crown a week was in the receipt of professional fees the gross amount of which was vaguely estimated by her neighbours as pounds and pounds moreover she drove a brisk trade in lollipop with epicurean urchins who recklessly purchased that luxury at the rate of two hundred per cent nevertheless with all these notorious sources of income the shameless old woman constantly pleaded poverty and begged for scraps at mrs hackett's 
who, though she always said Mrs. Fripp was as false as two folks, and no better than a miser and a heathen, had yet a leaning towards her as an old neighbour. "'There's that case-hardened old Judy a-coming after the tea-leaves again,' Mrs. Hackett would say, "'and I'm fool enough to give em her, though Sally wants em all the while to sweep the floors with.' Such was Dame Fripp, whom Mr. Gilfull, riding leisurely in top-boots and spurs from doing duty at Nebley one warm Sunday afternoon, observed sitting in the dry ditch near her cottage, and by her side a large pig, who, with that ease and confidence belonging to perfect friendship, was lying with his head in her lap, and making no effort to play the agreeable beyond an occasional grunt. "'Why, Mrs. Fripp,' said the vicar, "'I didn't know you had such a fine pig. You'll have some rare flitches at Christmas.' "'Eh, God forbid! My son gave him me two ear ago, and he's been company to me ever sin. I couldn't find in my heart to part wi' him, if I never knowed the taste of bacon fat again.' "'Why, he'll eat his head off, and yours too. How can you go on keeping a pig and making nothing by him?' "'Oh, he picks a bit hisself, we're rootin', and I don't mind goin' out to gi' him summat. A bit o' company's meat and drink too, and he follows me about and grunts when I spake to him.' just like a Christian. Mr. Gilfull laughed, and I am obliged to admit that he said good-bye to Dame Fripp without asking her why she had not been to church, or making the slightest effort for her spiritual edification. But the next day he ordered his man David to take her a great piece of bacon, with a message saying the parson wanted to make sure that Mrs. Fripp would know the taste of bacon fat again. So, when Mr. Gilfull died, Dame Fripp manifested her gratitude and reverence in the simply dingy fashion I have mentioned. You already suspect that the vicar did not shine in the more spiritual functions of his office, and, indeed, the utmost I can say for him in this respect is that he performed those functions with undeviating attention to brevity and despatch. He had a large heap of short sermons, rather yellow and worn at the edges, from which he took two every Sunday, securing perfect impartiality in the selection by taking them as they came, without reference to topics. And, having preached one of these sermons at Shepperton in the morning, he mounted his horse and rode hastily with the other in his pocket to Nebley, where he officiated in a wonderful little church, with a checkered pavement which had once rung to the iron tread of military monks with coats of arms in clusters on the lofty roof, marble warriors and their wives without noses, occupying a large proportion of the area, and the twelve apostles with their heads very much on one side, holding didactic ribbons, painted in fresco on the walls. Here, in an absence of mind to which he was prone, Mr. Gilfill would sometimes forget to take off his spurs before putting on his surplice, and only become aware of the omission by feeling something mysteriously tugging at the skirts of that garment as he stepped into the reading-desk. But the Nebley farmers would as soon have thought of criticizing the moon as their pastor. He belonged to the course of nature, like markets and toll-gates and dirty banknotes, and being a vicar, his claim on their veneration had never been counteracted by an exasperating claim on their pockets. 
some of them who did not indulge in the superfluity of a covered cart without springs had dined half an hour earlier than usual that is to say at twelve o'clock in order to have time for their long walk through miry lanes and present themselves duly in their places at two o'clock when mr oldenport and lady felicia to whom nebley church was a sort of family temple made their way among the bows and curtsies of their dependents to a carved and canopied pew in the chancel diffusing as they went a delicate odour of indian roses on the unsusceptible nostrils of the congregation the farmers wives and children sat on the dark oaken benches but the husbands usually chose the distinctive dignity of a stall under one of the twelve apostles where when the alternation of prayers and responses had given place to the agreeable monotony of the sermon paterfamilias might be seen or heard sinking into a pleasant doze from which he infallibly woke up at the sound of the concluding doxology and then they made their way back again through the miry lanes perhaps almost as much the better for this simple weekly tribute to what they knew of good and right as many a more wakeful and critical congregation of the present day mr gilfil too used to make his way home in the later years of his life for he had given up the habit of dining at nebley abbey on a sunday having i am sorry to say had a very bitter quarrel with mr oldenport the cousin and predecessor of the mr oldenport who flourished in the reverend amos spartan's time that quarrel was a sad pity for the two had had many a good day's hunting together when they were younger and in those friendly times not a few members of the hunt envied mr oldenport the excellent terms he was on with his vicar for as sir jasper sitwell observed next to a man's wife there's nobody can be such an infernal plague to you as a parson always under your nose on your own estate i fancy the original difference which led to the rupture was very slight but mr gilfil was of an extremely caustic turn his satire having a flavour of originality which was quite wanting in his sermons and as mr oldenport's armour of conscious virtue presented some considerable and conspicuous gaps the vicar's keen-edged retorts probably made a few incisions too deep to be forgiven such at least was the view of the case presented by mr hackett who knew as much of the matter as any third person for the very week after the quarrel when presiding at the annual dinner of the association for the prosecution of felons held at the oldenport arms he contributed an additional zest to the conviviality on that occasion by informing the company that the parson had given the squire a lick with the rough side of his tongue the detection of the person or persons who had driven off mr parrot's heifer could hardly have been more welcome news to the shepperton tenantry with whom mr oldenport was in the worst odour as a landlord having kept up his rents in spite of falling prices and not being in the least stung to emulation by paragraphs in the provincial newspapers stating that the honourable augustus purwell or viscount blethers had made a return of ten per cent on their last rent-day the fact was mr oldenport had not the slightest intention of standing for parliament whereas he had the strongest intention of adding to his unentailed estate 
Hence to the Shepperton farmers it was as good as lemon with their grog to know that the vicar had thrown out sarcasms against the squire's charities as little better than those of the man who stole a goose and gave away the giblets in alms. For Shepperton, you observe, was in a state of attic culture compared with Nebley. It had turnpike roads and a public opinion, whereas in the Boeotian Nebley men's minds and wagons alike moved in the deepest of ruts, and the landlord was only grumbled at as a necessary and unalterable evil, like the weather, the weevils, and the turnip fly. Thus in Shepperton this breach with Mr. Oldenport tended only to heighten that good understanding which the vicar had always enjoyed with the rest of his parishioners, from the generation whose children he had christened a quarter of a century before, down to that hopeful generation represented by little Tommy Bond, who had recently quitted frocks and trousers for the severe simplicity of a tight suit of corduroys, relieved by numerous brass buttons. Tommy was a saucy boy, impervious to all impressions of reverence, and excessively addicted to humming tops and marbles, with which recreative resources he was in the habit of immoderately distending the pockets of his corduroys. One day, spinning his top on the garden walk, and seeing the vicar advance directly towards it, at that exciting moment when it was beginning to sleep magnificently, he shouted out with all the force of his lungs, Stop! Don't knock my top down now! From that day little corduroys had been an especial favorite with Mr. Gilfil, who delighted to provoke his ready scorn and wonder by putting questions which gave Tommy the meanest opinion of his intellect. Well, little corduroys, have they milked the geese today? Milked the geese? Why they don't milk the geese, you silly! No, dear heart, why, how do the goslings live, then? The nutriment of goslings rather transcending Tommy's observations in natural history, he feigned to understand this question in an exclamatory rather than an interrogatory sense, and became absorbed in winding up his top. Ah, I see you don't know how the goslings live, but did you notice how it rained sugar-plums yesterday? Here Tommy became attentive. Why, they fell into my pocket as I rode along. You look in my pocket and see if they didn't. Tommy, without waiting to discuss the alleged antecedent, lost no time in ascertaining the presence of the agreeable consequent, for he had a well-founded belief in the advantages of diving into the vicar's pocket. Mr. Gilfil called it his wonderful pocket, because as he delighted to tell the young shavers and two-shoes, as he called all little boys and girls, Whenever he put pennies into it, they turned into sugar-plums, or gingerbread, or some other nice thing. Indeed, little Bessie Parrot, a flaxen-headed two-shoes, very white and fat as to her neck, always had the admirable directness and sincerity to salute him with the question, What's you dot in Zupatit? You can imagine, then, that the christening dinners were none the less merry for the presence of the parson. The farmers relished his society particularly, for he could not only smoke his pipe and season the details of parish affairs with abundance of caustic jokes and proverbs, but, as Mr. Bond often said, no man knew more than the vicar about the breed of cows and horses. He had grazing land of his own about five miles off, which a bailiff, ostensibly a tenant, farmed under his direction 
and to ride backwards and forwards and look after the buying and selling of stock was the old gentleman's chief relaxation now his hunting days were over to hear him discussing the respective merits of the devonshire breed and the shorthorns or the last foolish decision of the magistrates about a pauper a superficial observer might have seen little difference beyond his superior shrewdness between the vicar and his bucolic parishioners for it was his habit to approximate his accent and mode of speech to theirs doubtless because he thought it a mere frustration of the purposes of language to talk of sheer-hogs and ewes to men who habitually said sharigs and yows nevertheless the farmers themselves were perfectly aware of the distinction between them and the parson and had not at all the less belief in him as a gentleman and a clergyman for his easy speech and familiar manners mrs parrot smoothed her apron and set her cap right with the utmost solicitude when she saw the vicar coming made him her deepest curtsey and every christmas had a fat turkey ready to send him with her duty and in the most gossiping colloquies with mr gilfil you might have observed that both men and women minded their words and never became indifferent to his approbation the same respect attended him in his strictly clerical functions the benefits of baptism were supposed to be somehow bound up with mr gilfil's personality so metaphysical a distinction as that between a man and his office being as yet quite foreign to the mind of a good shepperton churchman savouring he would have thought of dissent on the very face of it miss selina parrot put off her marriage a whole month when mr gilfil had an attack of rheumatism rather than be married in a makeshift manner by the milby curate we've had a very good sermon this morning was the frequent remark after hearing one of the old yellow series heard with all the more satisfaction because it had been heard for the twentieth time for to minds on the shepperton level it is repetition not novelty that produces the strongest effect and phrases like tunes are a long time making themselves at home in the brain mr gilfil's sermons as you may imagine were not of a highly doctrinal still less of a polemical cast they perhaps did not search the conscience very powerfully for you remember that to mrs patten who had listened to them thirty years the announcement that she was a sinner appeared an uncivil heresy but on the other hand they made no unreasonable demand on the shepperton intellect amounting indeed to little more than an expansion of the concise thesis that those who do wrong will find it the worse for them and those who do well will find it the better for them the nature of wrong-doing being exposed in special sermons against lying backbiting anger slothfulness and the like and well-doing being interpreted as honesty truthfulness charity industry and other common virtues lying quite on the surface of life and having very little to do with deep spiritual doctrine mrs patten understood that if she turned out ill-crushed cheeses a just retribution awaited her though i fear she made no particular application of the sermon on backbiting mrs hackett expressed herself greatly edified by the sermon on honesty the allusion to the unjust weight and deceitful balance having a peculiar lucidity for her owing to a recent dispute with her grocer but i am not aware that she ever appeared to be much struck by the sermon on anger 
as to any suspicion that mr gilfil did not dispense the pure gospel or any strictures on his doctrine and mode of delivery such thoughts never visited the minds of the shepperton parishioners of those very parishioners who ten or fifteen years later showed themselves extremely critical of mr barton's discourses and demeanour but in the interim they had tasted that dangerous fruit of the tree of knowledge innovation which is well known to open the eyes even in an uncomfortable manner at present to find fault with the sermon was regarded as almost equivalent to finding fault with religion itself one sunday mr hackett's nephew master tom stokes a flippant town youth greatly scandalized his excellent relatives by declaring that he could write as good a sermon as mr gilfil's whereupon mr hackett sought to reduce the presumptuous youth to utter confusion by offering him a sovereign if he would fulfil his vaunt the sermon was written however and though it was not admitted to be anywhere within reach of mr gilfil's it was yet so astonishingly like a sermon having a text three divisions and a concluding exhortation beginning and now my brethren that the sovereign though denied formally was bestowed informally and the sermon was pronounced when master stokes's back was turned to be an uncommon clever thing the rev mr pickard indeed of the independent meeting had stated in a sermon preached at rotherby for the reduction of a debt on new zion built with an exuberance of faith and a deficiency of funds by seceders from the original zion that he lived in a parish where the vicar was very dark and in the prayers he addressed to his own congregation he was in the habit of comprehensively alluding to the parishioners outside the chapel walls as those who gallio-like cared for none of these things but i need hardly say that no church-goer ever came within earshot of mr pickard it was not to the shepperton farmers only that mr gilfil's society was acceptable he was a welcome guest at some of the best houses in that part of the country old sir jasper sitwell would have been glad to see him every week and if you had seen him conducting lady sitwell into dinner or had heard him talking to her with quaint yet graceful gallantry you would have inferred that the earlier period of his life had been passed in more stately society than could be found in shepperton and that his slipshod chat and homely manners were but like weather stains on a fine old block of marble allowing you still to see here and there the fineness of the grain and the delicacy of the original tint but in his later years these visits became a little too troublesome to the old gentleman and he was rarely to be found anywhere of an evening beyond the bounds of his own parish most frequently indeed by the side of his own sitting-room fire smoking his pipe and maintaining the pleasing antithesis of dryness and moisture by an occasional sip of gin and water here i am aware that i have run the risk of alienating all my refined lady readers and utterly annihilating any curiosity they may have felt to know the details of mr gilfil's love-story gin and water faugh you might as well ask us to interest ourselves in the romance of a tallow-chandler who mingles the image of his beloved with short dips and moulds but in the first place dear ladies allow me to plead that gin and water like obesity or baldness or the gout does not exclude a vast amount of antecedent romance 
any more than the neatly executed fronts which you may some day wear will exclude your present possession of less expensive braids alas alas we poor mortals are often little better than wood ashes there is small sign of the sap and the leafy freshness and the bursting buds that were once there but wherever we see wood ashes we know that all that early fullness of life must have been i at least hardly ever look at a bent old man or a wizened old woman but i see also with my mind's eye that past of which they are the shrunken remnant and the unfinished romance of rosy cheeks and bright eyes seems sometimes of feeble interest and significance compared with that drama of hope and love which has long ago reached its catastrophe and left the poor soul like a dim and dusty stage with all its sweet garden scenes and fair perspectives overturned and thrust out of sight in the second place let me assure you that mr gilfil's potations of gin and water were quite moderate his nose was not rubicund on the contrary his white hair hung around a pale and venerable face he drank it chiefly i believe because it was cheap and here i find myself alighting on another of the vicar's weaknesses which if i had cared to paint a flattering portrait rather than a faithful one i might have chosen to suppress it is undeniable that as the years advanced mr gilfil became as mr hackett observed more and more close-fisted though the growing propensity showed itself rather in the parsimony of his personal habits than in withholding help from the needy he was saving so he represented the matter to himself for a nephew the only son of a sister who had been the dearest object all but one in his life the lad he thought will have a nice little fortune to begin life with and will bring his pretty young wife some day to see the spot where his old uncle lies it will perhaps be all the better for his hearth that mine was lonely mr gilfil was a bachelor then that is the conclusion to which you would probably have come if you had entered his sitting-room where the bare tables the large old-fashioned horsehair chairs and the threadbare turkey carpet perpetually fumigated with tobacco seemed to tell a story of wifeless existence that was contradicted by no portrait no piece of embroidery no faded bit of pretty triviality hinting of taper fingers and small feminine ambitions and it was here that mr gilfil passed his evenings seldom with other society than that of ponto his old brown setter who stretched out at full length on the rug with his nose between his forepaws would wrinkle his brows and lift up his eyelids every now and then to exchange a glance of mutual understanding with his master but there was a chamber in shepperton vicarage which told a different story from that bare and cheerless dining-room a chamber never entered by any one besides mr gilfil and old martha the housekeeper who with david her husband as groom and gardener formed the vicar's entire establishment the blinds of this chamber were always down except once a quarter when martha entered that she might air and clean it she always asked mr gilfil for the key which he kept locked up in his bureau and returned it to him when she had finished her task 
it was a touching sight that the daylight streamed in upon as martha drew aside the blinds and thick curtains and opened the gothic casement of the oriel window on the little dressing-table there was a dainty looking-glass in a carved and gilt frame bits of wax-candle were still in the branched sockets at the sides and on one of these branches hung a little black lace kerchief a faded satin pin-cushion with the pins rusted in it a scent-bottle and a large green fan lay on the table and on a dressing-box by the side of the glass was a work-basket and an unfinished baby-cap yellow with age lying in it two gowns of a fashion long forgotten were hanging on nails against the door and a pair of tiny red slippers with a bit of tarnished silver embroidery on them were standing at the foot of the bed two or three water-colour drawings views of naples hung upon the walls and over the mantelpiece above some bits of rare old china two miniatures in oval frames one of these miniatures represented a young man about seven and twenty with a sanguine complexion full lips and clear candid grey eyes the other was the likeness of a girl probably not more than eighteen with small features thin cheeks a pale southern-looking complexion and large dark eyes the gentleman wore powder the lady had her dark hair gathered away from her face and a little cap with a cherry-coloured bow set on the top of her head a coquettish headdress but the eyes spoke of sadness rather than of coquetry such were the things that martha had dusted and let the air upon four times a year ever since she was a blooming lass of twenty and she was now in this last decade of mr gilfil's life unquestionably on the wrong side of fifty such was the locked-up chamber in mr gilfil's house a sort of visible symbol of the secret chamber in his heart where he had long turned the key on early hopes and early sorrows shutting up for ever all the passion and the poetry of his life there were not many people in the parish besides martha who had any very distinct remembrance of mr gilfil's wife or indeed who knew anything of her beyond the fact that there was a marble tablet with a latin inscription in memory of her over the vicarage pew the parishioners who were old enough to remember her arrival were not generally gifted with descriptive powers and the utmost you could gather from them was that mrs gilfil looked like a furriner with such eyes you can't think and a voice as went through you when she sung at church the one exception was mrs patten whose strong memory and taste for personal narrative made her a great source of oral tradition in shepperton mr hackett who had not come into the parish until ten years after mrs gilfil's death would often put old questions to mrs patten for the sake of getting the old answers which pleased him in the same way as passages from a favourite book or the scenes of a familiar play please more accomplished people ah you remember well the sunday as mrs gilfil first came to church eh mrs patten to be sure i do it was a fine bright sunday as ever was seen just at the beginning o hay harvest mr tarbett preached that day and mr gilfil sat to the pew with his wife i think i see him now a-leadin her up the aisle and her head not reachin much above his elber a little pale woman with eyes as black as sloes and yet lookin blank-like 
as if she'd seed nothing with em. "'I warrant she had her weddin' clothes on,' said Mr. Hackett. "'Nothin' particular smart, only a white hat tied down under her chin, and a white indie muslin gown. But you don't know what Mr. Gilful was in those times. He was fine and altered before you come into the parish. He'd a fresh colour then, and a bright look wi' his eyes, as did your heart good to see. He looked rare and happy that Sunday, but somehow I'd a feelin' as it wouldn't last long. I've no opinion of furriners, Mr. Hackett, for I've travelled i' their country with my lady in my time, and seen enough of their victuals and their nasty ways. Mrs. Gilful came from Italy, didn't she? I reckon she did, but I never could rightly hear about that. Mr. Gilful was never to be spoke to about her, and nobody else hereabout knowed anything. However, she must a come over pretty young, for she spoke English as well as you and me. It's them Italians as has such fine voices, and Mrs. Gilful sung, you never heerd the like. He brought her here to have tea with me one afternoon, and says he, in his jovial way, now, Mrs. Patton, I want Mrs. Gilful to see the neatest house and drink the best cup of tea in all Shepperton. You must show her your dairy and your cheese room, and then she shall sing you a song. And so she did, and her voice seemed sometimes to fill the room, and then it went low and soft, as if it was whispering close to your heart like. You never heard her again, I reckon. No, she was sickly then, and she died in a few months after. She wasn't in the parish much more nor half a year altogether. She didn't seem lively that afternoon, and I could see she didn't care about the dairy nor the cheeses, only she pretended to please him. As for him, I never seed a man so wrapped up in a woman. He looked at her as if he was worshipping her, and as if he wanted to lift her off the ground every minute to save her the trouble o' walking. Poor man, poor man. It had like to ha' killed him when she died though he never give way, but went on riding about and preaching. But he was war to a shatter, and his eyes used to look as dead. You wouldn't ha' knowed him. She brought him no fortune. Not she. All Mr. Gilfil's property came by his mother's side. There was blood and money, too, there. It's a thousand pities as he married her that way. A fine man like him, as might have had the pick of the county, and had his grandchildren about him now and him so fond of children, too. In this manner Mrs. Patton usually wound up her reminiscences of the vicar's wife, of whom, you perceive, she knew but little. It was clear that the communicative old lady had nothing to tell of Mrs. Gilfil's history previous to her arrival in Shepperton, and that she was unacquainted with Mr. Gilfil's love-story. But I, dear reader, am quite as communicative as Mrs. Patton, and much better informed, so that, if you care to know more about the vicar's courtship and marriage, you need only carry your imagination back to the latter end of the last century, and your attention forward into the next chapter. End of chapter 1 of Mr. Gilfil's Love Story